Uh, open in your Bibles, if you would, to Romans chapter 1. And we are going to continue on at our breakneck speed, working through the book of Romans. And uh, you see, you may have gotten the email midweek. I thought I would go all the way through verse 7, but no. So if we make it through verse 5, I will be very happy <laughs> by the end of today. But we are in Romans chapter 1. And our text is going to be focused mainly in verses 2 through 5. But I want to read for us verses 1 through 7 of Romans chapter 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we take a moment to quiet our hearts and acknowledge that this time is primarily between us and you. We have your word opened in front of us. We are gathered together as this local body to worship you, to serve you, to serve one another, to glory in what you've done. And so as we come to this time this morning where we, we study your word, where we hear your word proclaimed, having spent a great time in worship, having spent a great time in singing to you, singing praises to you and laying down uh, our own lives in worship to you, having done that, we now come to your word and we ask, Father, that you would speak to us by your spirit from your word. Help us to set aside distraction. Help us to look to you. Help us to find hope and encouragement and strength from your word. Guidance for our lives as to how we are to behave and what we are to believe. So we ask for your blessing on our time this morning. May you be lifted up and may we be built up. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Bob mentioned that... Uh, 30 years ago, I wasn't even a Christian. 30 years ago, I wasn't even five feet tall, hardly. And I was a teenager, but, but, uh, that was, uh, obviously a life-changing time, uh, for me in 1992 when I first, uh, really heard the gospel and trusted Christ. And, and I, it happened on a baseball field and I was a baseball player. And so a lot of things in my own testimony have to do with baseball, uh, just as I was discovering the gospel and the Bible and uh, what it meant to walk with God and who Jesus was. All those things happened during that first baseball season. And I remember how annoying I was to some of my teammates and particularly opponents, because when the game would get tough, and I would, you know, have two strikes on me or whatever, two outs, you know, the bottom of the seventh or whatever. And I would stand off to the side with my bat on my shoulder, staring at the clouds because I was thinking God created those clouds. 
And he is bigger than those clouds and he is bigger than this earth. And so I was, I was trying to remind myself of big, myself of things that are big and true, things that are about God, things that were of greater significance than if I struck out or got a base hit. And so it was my little young way of disciplining my mind to focus on what was important. Because when I heard the gospel and when I trusted Christ, it was like, it was like a Copernican revolution, like everything shifted. All of a sudden, wait a minute, there really is a God and Jesus is his son who really did die for me that I might be reconciled to God. Those were new thoughts that reshaped everything, reshaped all of my thoughts, reshaped my emotions, reshaped how I looked at the world. And as we as we come to our passage today, we, we work through verses 2 through 5 and we get a picture, kind of a foretaste of what Paul is going to get into in the rest of the book. He's giving us hints of things that are to come. And, and we've already referred to Paul's own conversion and how he went from being someone who hated Christ and hated Christians to a slave of Christ who would devote his entire life even to death to serving Christ, to take this gospel to other people. And so it was a Copernican revolution in his own mind, in his life. And, and our passage today really talks about that revolution and how that happens in our lives and what is to come about in our own lives as a result of the truth of the gospel. Because Paul tells us that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is to be believed, it's to be obeyed for Christ's sake. And it will bring great change. And so we look at our passage this morning. And uh, as I, I said, we're going to work just through two through five. And I know this is all I'm, I'm sort of cutting up a sentence, but uh, we'll readdress it next week and uh, put all things together. But Paul is introducing last week. He's introduced himself and this week he's introducing the gospel. And he's giving us just ideas, just themes, key, key elements, aspects that are going to come up uh, in his development of his argument throughout the book of Romans. And the first of those is that the gospel has always been God's plan. From the very beginning, the gospel was God's plan. Look at how he continues there the sentence in verse 2. He's talking about the gospel. It says in verse 1, he was set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. It was revealed in promises. The gospel, you get ideas, you get hints, you get things just beginning to, to show themselves in the Old Testament in these promises that are made. And of course, the, the promise that I think of, first of all, when I think of the gospel is Genesis 3.15. Because of course, you know, the Bible starts off very well. The story of mankind starts off good with creation in chapter 1 and then a kind of a retelling and some the, the relationship between man and the animals and the world in, uh, in chapter 2 and then chapter 3 happens and everything goes downhill. And it's right at that time, it's right after the fall, it's right after they've taken from this fruit that's been forbidden to them, that we have uh, not only the, the cursing and the consequences that are going to be, but that promise in Genesis 3.15, that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the seed of the serpent. It, it will bruise the seed of the woman's heel, but it will crush the head of the serpent. And so we see that promise made all the way at the very beginning, when there needed to be a promise. 
When things first went south, we see that promise given. And of course, it's developed as it goes through the Old Testament. I think also of the promises made to Abraham later on in Genesis in chapter 12 and chapter 15 and 17. Uh, Paul says of him actually that, that Abraham understood he was to be the heir of the world. And so the promise is made and it's developed and it's fleshed out. But you see this promise made by God when things are dark. Imagine how dark it would have been when the fight lights first went out. Right? I mean, we're sort of used to the world and, uh, you know, the way things are and sin and stuff like that. But for Adam and Eve, there hadn't been any of that. And then the lights went out. And how dark that must have been. And right then, at that dark moment, when they were first beginning to realize the consequences of their sin, and they're going to be kicked out of the garden, and now the toil uh, work is going to be hard for them, and childbirth is going to be difficult, and they're going to have enmity, and all this kind of struggle between the two of them. And at that moment, God gives promise. And so the gospel is revealed in promises. Just just hints. I've heard it said that the the Old Testament is is a little bit like a beautifully furnished room but with the lights turned out. All the stuff is there but it's hard to make it out sometimes until the lights are turned on of the New Testament. So we see that as the case in the promises about the gospel, that they are there and we see truths about them, but it's not until later fulfillment that we have more of it spelled out. So there, the gospel has been revealed in promises. It's been revealed in prophets, right? He promised beforehand through his prophets. Paul is going to argue later on in chapter 4 about these prophets. And he's speaking specifically in chapter 4 about Abraham and about David. He's going to argue from from uh, those passages uh, regarding them. And if you'll turn to Romans chapter 4, just want to look at a few verses there. He says uh, regarding Abraham that uh, Abraham's own righteousness was through faith. Look at chapter 4, verses 3 through 5. Romans chapter 4. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And so he says, even all the way back to Abraham, we begin to learn of justification, being made righteous, being declared righteous before God based upon faith. And then he moves on. Look what he says. He he begins to talk about David. He says in verse 6, Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And then here we have a quotation from Psalm 51. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So he started off by talking about Abraham and pointing all the way back to Abraham in Genesis to say that justification is by faith. And that promise has existed there through the prophets even from that time. And then he goes on to talk about David, of course, the famous king, of probably uh, the best known figure perhaps in the Old Testament, King David. And what does King David say about it? He says justification is by faith. And then he comes back to Abraham again in verse 13 of chapter 4. And he says, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. 
That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. And so he points to the prophets. Particularly, he points to Abraham and David to say that even all the way back then, these heroes of the faith, these ones that we look to and we have, have taught us so much and the Bible has so much to say about them and we learn so much from their lives and how God worked in their lives, says these indeed point to the gospel. These tell us about justification by faith. So the gospel has been revealed in promises. It was promised beforehand. It's been revealed through prophets. And it's been revealed in Holy Scriptures. Revealed in Holy Scriptures. These truths about justification by faith, they were laid down for us in the Bible. In the Scripture. Even the Old Testament Scriptures from the beginning have been laid down for us that we might learn truths regarding the Gospel. The truth is there for all to see. But if you'll turn to Romans chapter 9, Paul talks about why it so often was not seen. The truth is there, but why was it so often not seen? And he says in chapter 9 and verse 30, he says, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. And so he says those promises were there, the truth of justification by faith, the truth of being declared righteous before God based upon faith, that truth is there from the very beginning, but it, but it wasn't seen because the law was focused on as a means of salvation, as if it were based on works. But that promise was there from the beginning. And so what's the application for us? Well, the application is really a principle here. Truth is revealed in Scripture. Who God is And the way he works is found in the Bible. We find out from him what he expects from us in his word. And so we need to know his word. We need to know what it says. At Parkside, we often stress daily Bible reading. We stress Bible study. We stress Bible memory and Bible meditation. So we can get to know God better. So we can see what God says about himself. So we can see what he tells us about this salvation that we have. The Bible needs to be our guide. Personally, I've, I've never been very fond of, of devotionals. And there are multiple reasons for that. But one of those reasons is because I just want this. I just want what God says. And I'm not disparaging devotionals. There are some excellent, excellent devotionals. But if you choose one, it needs to be rich in the Word. It needs to be explaining what is here. 
And not just a verse that then pontificates from my life experiences or something like that. It needs to be rich in the word because the word is the truth of God. So the gospel has always been God's plan. And we move on and we see that the gospel has a center. He moves on in verses 3 and 4. This gospel, which was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, verse 3, is concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. The the gospel has a center. One central thing that it, it is concerning, and it is the Son of God. It is the Son of God. Notice in verse 1 that Paul had called it the gospel of God. And now he says it's concerning his son. Sometimes maybe we have a misunderstanding about how things work within the Trinity. I don't know how often you guys think about how things work within the Trinity. But sometimes we have this idea, right, that the father is just mad and wrathful, perhaps, against people. And he is just and he's righteous and he gave him this law and they broke this law. So he's going to uh, bring justice and, and judgment on people. And Jesus steps in because Jesus really loves us a lot. He steps in and he's willing to take that penalty for us so that the father's wrath is absorbed in the son and therefore we're okay. And so Jesus, it's a good thing Jesus loved us enough because the father didn't seem to love us enough, right? We, We might have a misunderstanding like that, but we see a picture here, even in what Paul is talking about in verses one and verse three, that there is a cooperation and has always been between the members of the Godhead. The Father and the Son and the Spirit work in cooperation and they love us enough to provide salvation. They love us enough to orchestrate things the way they have done. It's not that the Father is the mean one and that Jesus uh, came and took it on the chin for us. They work together. The Trinity has always worked together in perfect harmony for the sake of the gospel. The Father initiates and He originates the plan of redemption. The Son accomplishes that work of redemption. And the Holy Spirit applies that work in our lives. So we have a cooperation. So the gospel is about the Son of God and His working on our behalf in redemption. But he points out that it's not just about the Son of God. It's about the Son of David in prophecy. Right? Look what he says there. Concerning His Son who was descended from David according to the flesh. Jesus came as the son of David, according to the flesh. Of course, this is a reference to the incarnation. This is a reference to the eternal son of God taking on flesh, being born as a man, becoming one of us. The incarnation, the taking on flesh that the son did. But he didn't just, you know, he wasn't born in Fallon. (laughs) He wasn't uh, born as a beehimer. He was born as the son of David. He was descended from David according to the flesh. That takes us all the way back to promises made by God to to David himself in 2 Samuel chapter 7. I would encourage you to read that chapter this afternoon. That's where we have the, the Lord speaking to David about what he's going to do with his descendant. The salvation he's going to provide 
through this son of David. I, I read in Second Samuel chapter 7, verses 11 through 14. The Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, David, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. So that's a promise made to David about his offspring, about what's going to come. And so you, you have the roots of this expectation of, of a, a son of David who's going to come and set up a kingdom and reign. Of course, in Jeremiah chapter 23, centuries after the death of David, we read this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. So we have that promise continued even centuries after David's dead, that there's still this expectation of a Messiah who's to come, this son of David who's going to come from the lineage of David, and he's going to set up a throne, he's going to reign. And we learn more and more about this Messiah as we go through Scripture. And we see that he's the one who's going to be the Savior of his people. He's the one who's going to come and deliver those who are his and so, of course, when Jesus comes on the scene in the Gospels, we see that he begins fulfilling prophecy after prophecy. Even, even his very birth, even things that happened before his birth are in fulfillment of this prophecy regarding this king of David, this son of David who was to come. And so Jesus is fulfilling those prophecies. He's making clear that he really is this messianic son of David that they had come to expect. And so the Gospel that Paul is proclaiming here in the book of Romans that he proclaims in his whole ministry is about the Son of God who took on flesh in order to redeem his people. That's at the heart of Paul's message. As I was thinking about how Paul speaks of Jesus in these couple of verses, it occurred to me that the, 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 the people living during Jesus' day, they both overestimated the Messiah, in a sense, and underestimated the Messiah, in a sense. I say they overestimated him because they expected him to come on a white horse and to deliver the people, to, to raise an army and go to war against Rome and set up the kingdom and let's do this now. So, in a sense, when they saw Jesus as like a regular guy who refused to take up the sword, who refused to take up the white horse and go to battle, they thought he was weak. They had overestimated him, in a sense. They expected that deliverance. And when he didn't bring the deliverance the way they wanted it, they kind of set him aside. But on the other hand, how they had underestimated him. They had expected only someone to come and deliver them. They had, they had expected someone who would bring political victory, someone who would give them strength as a nation, who would conquer their enemies. And they didn't realize their own enemy within. They didn't realize their own need of a savior. They didn't realize the cost of the sin in their own lives. Jesus came as the one who didn't meet their expectations, and yet he says here that he's actually the Son of God in power. Jesus is declared to be the Son of God in power. Look at, look at verse 4 and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. 
where Jesus had experienced weakness in the flesh. And people sort of scorned him because of his weakness. He was, he was humble. He was meek. He was lowly. And that was, that was not a good thing. They expected more from, from someone who claimed to be the Messiah. So he came in that way in weakness, but he didn't remain weak. And he didn't remain in the flesh. When it talks about his flesh, it's talking about his earthly life. But of course, he didn't retain his earthly life, did he? Because he was killed. He was put to death. But he was raised. And when he was raised, something new happened. My version says he was declared to be the Son of God. Most of your versions say something similar to that. It's really the idea of appointing. It's the idea of something new happening. And it's not that Jesus had not been the Son of God, and now he's appointed the Son of God, so he got a promotion. That's not what's going on here. It says he was appointed the Son of God in power. So, whereas you look at Jesus' earthly life in his flesh, was he powerful? Was he strong? Well, he had powers and he did things, but he also got beat up and he was surprising in his weakness. He was meek and he was lowly and he was mild and he suffered from, you know, he needed to sleep and needed to eat and he got beat up and things like that. So he was weak here. He was the son of God, but at his resurrection, something new happens. At his resurrection, he, he, he comes into the full experience of his power. That had been veiled, that had not been visible, had not been seen, and that he had not used during his earthly life. But at the resurrection, that all changes. This is what Peter makes reference to in Acts chapter 2. During Peter's sermon there at Pentecost, this is what he says. This Jesus, God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. And then look at verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, as the resurrected Son of Man, the Son of God, He is the God-man in the flesh with all power and all authority and the freedom to wield it as he wants. There is nothing weak and lowly about this Jesus. He is the Son of God in power. He is reigning over all things with absolute authority. So what's the application for us? 1 John 5 and verse 12 says this, Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Folks, our Christianity stands or falls with our view of Christ. He reigns as the Son of God in power over all things. Some of us have not made the transition from baby Jesus. We've not made the transition from Jesus in his earthly life. We, we still think of him in those terms. We still, we still think of him as, as somehow smaller than he actually is. And we need to understand that at the resurrection, he has been appointed the Son of God in power. I was listening to a message by Vody Bauckham. And if you don't know Vody Bauckham, you should. He's a, he's a large man. And he's a, a, a powerful, powerful Baptist preacher. And he talks about this this weak, sissified Jesus that we have in our minds. 
that it just breaks Jesus' heart that we won't come to him or that we won't obey him. It just, just breaks his heart. And he, he changes and he says, no, Jesus will break you. Like, what Jesus are we talking about? He is God over all. He is Almighty God, the Son of God in power. And He has been appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. And so you need to have it fixed in your mind that Jesus is the Almighty Lord over all. And He is the one with whom we have to do. Because the gospel is about Him. And the gospel has purpose. The gospel has purpose now. Look at verse 5. Talking about Christ, His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, verse 5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the nations for the sake of His name. You see, the gospel is not just a story about supernatural events that happened 2,000 years ago. It is active right now, changing lives, even in this moment. The gospel is at work. It has purpose. First of all, the gospel is to be obeyed. Look at what it says here in verse 5. Receive grace and apostleship. He's talking about his own grace, his own apostleship Paul, ha- Paul has received from God for a purpose unto the obedience of faith, to bring about the obedience of faith. And it's a little difficult to communicate I, I really wish I had a copy of the Oxford English Dictionary, the longer multi-volume one, to look up the word of. Because it, it, it's probably several pages. And it's two letters, right? O-F, right? But what does it mean? What does of mean? If I, if I mention the love of God, you immediately took that at least two different ways in your own mind. And when, since I gave you no context, you were fine in doing that. Love that comes from God. The love of God. The love of God has been poured into our hearts. God has given us a love, right? That's a legitimate use of that word of. Maybe it's love for God. The love of God should change us. It molds us because we have love for God, right? That's a love of God, okay? So that word of can be taken a lot of different ways. Depending upon what kind of context. Does it mean source? Does it mean where that love comes from? Does it mean it's directed back towards the person? Does it mean it flows from them? Does it, 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 does it mean it's owned by them? The word of is difficult. And look what our passage says here. It speaks of the obedience of faith. And by the way, the Greek is no help here. <laughs> Often the Greek will give you just a little hint that it means this versus that. No, sorry. It's no help. The obedience of faith. What does that mean? Well, it's been interpreted various ways, and probably when I read through it, you automatically interpreted it in your own mind one particular way. And I'll tell you which way I think it should be interpreted. But first of all, does it mean the obedience which is faith? Obedience which equals faith. Or perhaps the obedience that consists in faith. So, in that way of understanding, if that's how you interpreted it when I read it to you, in your mind, that means something like obeying the gospel means believing the gospel. Right? Which Paul is going to say, by the way, in Romans chapter 10. Talks about obeying the gospel. 
and unbelief being those who don't obey the gospel. So that's a possibility. Or does it mean the faith which obeys, like an obedient faith? And I, I realize I may be in, in, in the weeds here with some of you who don't really care that much about grammar, right? I, I happen to like grammar. I happen to think in those terms. And, and there are a couple of you who do also. But this is important stuff because he says this is, this is the purpose of his apostleship. Not the sole purpose, but it's, it's a great purpose of his own apostleship is to bring about the obedience of faith. So what, Paul, do you mean? And so we need to wrestle with it. We need to think about it. And so we're wrestling with it. Or perhaps it means the obedience which stems from faith. I have faith that produces some kind of obedience. Perhaps that is what it means. One author who was the one of my professors in, uh, in graduate school has this to say about it in his commentary on Romans. He says, this is Doug Moo, he says, Obedience always involves faith, and faith always involves obedience. Here's the way Calvin put it. It is faith alone which justifies, and yet the faith which justifies is not alone. I think what's going on here is he is talking about true faith in Christ that is such a change. It is it is a reorientation of all things that are true so that when you trust in Christ, He becomes your Lord. He becomes the center of your world. He becomes all things. And that faith that we have in Him results in a difference in behavior. Maybe not immediately. Usually it's immediately in some ways. When someone comes to faith, you'll begin to see tiny little ways where they are already obeying. Maybe in ways perhaps that you didn't even tell them to obey. But over time, that new faith that identifies Jesus as the most important thing in the world begins to change the way I live so that it results in obedience in my life. And Paul is going to talk in chapter 5 and chapter 6 and chapter 7 and chapter 8. He's going to talk about how that works out in our lives. So when he talks about the obedience of faith... He means something like that true kind of faith that, that will result in obedience. That will result in a change of who we are, a change of our reality, that Copernican revolution that I mentioned earlier. Now, I'm no longer the center of all things. Jesus is the center of all things. And that changes my behavior. And you begin to see it in a person's life. You begin to see it when, when for me, as a brand new believer, no one even knew I was a believer, just the Lord and me. And I was convicted about how I spoke, about my language. No one knew to tell me, Brennan, you shouldn't talk like that. Christians don't talk like that because they didn't know I was one. But because of that shift that had happened, because of this faith where all of a sudden I don't get to call the shots, Jesus gets to call the shots, I'll bet he didn't want me to talk like that. So I stopped talking like that. You'll, you'll begin to see evidence of that change. And so I think that's, 
That's what he's talking about here when he says the purpose of his ministry is to bring about the obedience of faith. That's what he's talking about. Is he, he wants to preach the gospel and he wants to see people come to the kind of faith that didn't just, just sign a card, didn't just walk an aisle or shake a hand or, or raise a hand or anything like that. But it's the kind of faith that has, has redefined who I am because Jesus is the center now, not me. And that's the purpose of Paul's ministry. And it's the purpose of our ministry to bring about that kind of faith. And of course, that's not something we can accomplish. But we preach God's word. We pray that it would happen. We minister, we disciple to those ends. So the gospel is to be obeyed. And the gospel is for all peoples. Now, I want to make a note here for those of you who are using the ESV. Uh, I... I'm not very happy with them at this point. I'll tell you why. So through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of, of faith. It should say among all the nations next. If you're using a new American standard or NIV or King James or whatever, it talks about the nations next. And then finally, at the end of the sentence, it will talk about uh, for the sake of his name, right? You with me? You see that in your text right there? Now, I think the ESV was trying to smooth out Paul's sentence to make to stick things together and make it work. I wish they wouldn't have done that. It messes things up. But I'm going to, in my outline, point number two is the gospel is for all peoples. It's for all peoples. Of course, we go back to that promise that we talked about earlier that was made in Genesis chapter 3 right after the fall. The promise is made to whom? It's concerning all of us. The crushing of the head of the serpent benefits all peoples. The promise made to Abraham was that he would be the father of many nations. Paul's going to interpret that later on as as, uh, Abraham understanding he was to inherit the world. And so even though there was the expectation from the earliest days that, that this promise would go to all peoples, we don't see a lot of outreach happening in the Old Testament. Though, if you read Psalm 117, Psalm 117 is written to Gentiles. It says, praise the Lord, all nations. That's us. Extol him, all peoples. That's us. And so there is that element there. And it was intended to be for all peoples. But now in the New Testament, we see that it really does specifically and intentionally go out to all peoples. You think of the the Great Commission. It's to go into all the world. You think of Paul's own call. It's to be the apostle to the Gentiles. God is very intentionally sending out the gospel into all the world for all peoples because God is gathering for himself a people from every tribe and tongue and nation, a people who will be his own possession. And then finally, the gospel is for Jesus' sake. The gospel is for Jesus' sake. We've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the nations for the sake of his name. The, the Semitic idea of name is reputation. It's, it's, all, it's a representation of the character, the, the totality, the entirety of the character of the person you're talking about. So when it's talking about Jesus' name, it's talking about all that he represents, all that he is, his glory, his reputation, his name, his fame, who he is, all wrapped up in that name. But what may surprise you is that Paul didn't say, for the sake of the lost. I, I might have written that. You might have written that. And Paul's heart is certainly for the lost. 
He's going to weep. In chapter 9, he's going to say, I, I could wish my own self separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren. He cares about the lost. But as much as he cares about the lost, as much as his heart breaks for his fellow Israelites who don't know Christ, as much as he cares, yet he has an even greater priority. And that priority is Jesus' name. He does so. He is a missionary not primarily for the sake of the lost, but primarily for Jesus' own glory, for His sake, for His reputation, for Him. That doesn't rule out His concern for the lost, but He is stating what His priority is. And a challenge for us is to have a similar priority that we would actually have God all the way up there at the top of our priorities. Not just on a Sunday morning when we're talking because that's what polite Christians do. But actually in our life that we would have the Lord of glory in the position of Lord. That we would value Him like that. So it's our final application I believe it's this. The kind of faith that lays hold of the work of Christ for you is more than just a mental assent to certain truths. The kind of faith that makes the gospel one's own is a faith that reorders all of reality in your mind around Jesus at the center. Because faith is trust. Faith is not just assent. Faith is not just believing that Jesus died for sins. That would be a belief in a fact. Faith is believing in Jesus who died for your sins. Trusting that His payment for your sins is the only payment you have. And that His is the only payment sufficient to satisfy the wrath of God for your sin. And trusting in Him. Faith that lays hold of Jesus that way will result over time in a complete reorientation of your world around trust in who Jesus is and what He has done. And as your world is reordered in that way and the Spirit of God does His work in your understanding and your values, you will begin to see change brought about in your life. A change of obedience from the heart to Christ. Or as we quoted Calvin earlier, it's faith alone that justifies and yet the faith which justifies is not alone. It brings with it a reordering of all things and results in obedience. And so if you don't have that sort of faith, the command of God for you today is to repent and believe in Jesus Christ for the salvation of your soul. That's the kind of faith He wants from you. The gospel was promised by God from the earliest days of the Old Testament. He promised that a son of David would come to save his people and be their deliverer. Jesus came in the flesh as that very son of David to carry out the Father's plan of deliverance by bearing in his own body the penalty for their sins. But the gospel isn't done there because the son of David, sown in weakness and death, was raised from the dead and received all power and position as the almighty God-man and ruler of all things having received the name that is above every name. And now His name is proclaimed in all the world. 
And it's bearing fruit among all peoples. It's bearing the fruit of obedience, the obedience of faith among all the nations. And all of this is for the sake of Jesus' glory, of his fame, of his reputation, because he really is the one who is most valuable. He really is the one who is most to be honored and worshipped and valued. And he calls you and me to participate in that by our own faith and as we take that gospel to our neighbors. I'm going to pray in a moment. And after I'm done praying, there's going to be a family up front to pray with you. They love to uh, pray for your needs. They love to rejoice with you and things you need to pray about. And uh, they keep that confidential unless you uh, tell them otherwise. But uh, come up and pray with them. They would love to do that. Otherwise, let's pray. Father, we uh, conclude confessing that Jesus is not always uppermost in our thoughts. That often my own uh, value, my own worth, my own reputation is of greater concern to me than the worth and value and reputation of Jesus. I confess that as sin, and I pray that you would forgive me. And Father, I do pray that you would work in us that this faith that has that kind of result, this deep down faith that goes all the way to the core of who we are and reorients all of our understanding of all of existence would be evident and would be growing and would be spreading. And if there are people in this room who do not know Christ, who do not have that kind of faith, I pray that you would draw them to yourself in that way. Father, I pray that you would save souls even today. Thank you that the gospel is bearing fruit. Thank you that it is for all the nations because I'm one of those. Father, we rejoice in this salvation that's ours, that's none of our doing, that we didn't, we didn't earn, we didn't think it up, and, and uh, it's pure mercy that you would even send Christ for us. We thank you and we praise you. We rejoice in Christ. We rejoice in you because of him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen and amen. God bless you all, and you are dismissed.